have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. One zero seven seven The Bronx, one zero seven seven The Bronx dot com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Health Four One One. I'm Dr. Jonathan Carp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health Four One One: Truthful Health Information to Expand Your Knowledge and Perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy and the business of healthcare. I'm here today in the studio with Diamond McNellis, our producer, and our topic for our first segment today. Well, let me start this topic with asking you a question, Diamond. How much of your brain are you using right now? And I don't mean that to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> All of it? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but there are people out there, and one of the things that people talk about is you only, or I'll ask you, have you ever heard somebody tell you you only use 10% of your brain? Yeah, a lot of psychology professors like to say it. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about today. To sort of it sort of determine, is that fact or is it fiction? Let's begin with a, an overview of what your brain and your nervous system is designed to do. Without becoming anatomists or going deep into this, in the, in the most simple sense, your brain and nervous system is designed to take in information from the outside, sensory information, integrate that with information about what's happening all over your body, put those two things together, and produce appropriate behavior for the environment in which you, which you are in. The human nervous system is very, very good at that in the sense that we are able to take in that sensory information and component, components of our brain can help, help us decide how we're gonna behave in a variety of evolutionary situations or, or environmental situations. In terms of evolution, our brain is a metabolic hog. It uses a huge amount of the body's energy and estimates are usually hover around the 20% number where about 20% of the blood oxygen is used by the brain. We also know that in terms of the development of the nervous system, our brains are born sort of plastic. We're born, you know, we can make noises when we're born, but something happens about two years of age and those noises become language and other things happen as you grow older and we develop the, the more and more capabilities in terms of our capacity to interact with the world around us. Given that, people, when they become adults, often say things like that myth, you, you only use 10% of your brain. And in, a, in the perspective of evolution, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for an organ to use 20% of the energy and 20% of your blood glucose for just wasted space. I want to sort of address it and sort of where does this sort of idea come from that you only use a small percent of your brain? And it, it's something that's sort of a psycho fact that's repeated off, often by people who don't have an appreciation of what the nervous system is really designed to do. It's, re it's repeated in advertisements. You see advertisements for computers. You see advertisements for cars. We can talk a little bit about that too. You also see people talking about, usually people selling psychic adventures or psychic tricks and paranormal 
experiences saying, wouldn't it be great if we could unlock our full brain potential? You see movies that are made uh, about uh, science fiction stories where certain humans get to use, you know, 100% of their brain or some of them even, you know, 110% of the brain and they they transcend sort of the physical and material world. It gives the people an impression that, that, that there are portions of the brain that are sort of like an appendix that are there that have no use. And that number 10%, like people have debated, where does it come from? And uh, nobody really knows for sure. Some people attribute it to scientists in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who were experimenting with animals. And in those days, people were looking for brain centers that did this they would find like they were looking for like the memory center or the eating center or the maze running center and they were removing parts of brain parts of cortex to see what animals can do and they noticed that a lot of animals continued to be able to behave they continued to be able to remember they continued to be able to see even if large portions of their brain were removed but that's not really origin of it sometimes people misinterpreted that kind of science Einstein has been credited with saying you only, people only use a small percentage of his brain, but he was not really a, a brain scientist, and he might have been referring to, to something else. But it's something that has been definitely promoted in the popular literature and movies and advertisements. Have you seen any, seen any of those? Yeah, I have. Actually, thinking of it, you said the computer analogy, and I'm pretty sure, I can't remember what it was for, but I remember seeing it in comparison to a computer and and unlocking, and it's just weird. Yeah. It's weird to me. Well, if you only use 10% of your brain, and when when I talk about this in my classes, I always ask the students, if you're only using 10% of it, would you let me suck out 90% of it? No. Do you think you'd be changed by that experience? The data is actually very clear on that. In fact, if I damage actually very, very small portions of your brain, let's say with a stroke, I could have very, very profound behavioral outcomes. I could damage a few millimeters of your visual cortex and you might lose part of your visual field after a stroke. If I did it in another area of your brain, again, it's a few, few millimeters of brain tissue, you might lose the ability to detect motion or have color vision or you might lose the ability to, to move a finger or, or a limb. And those kinds of brain damage come from relatively small parts of your brain being changed. You know, yet people talk about, oh, I only use a small percent of your brain. And I have to tell you, there's no evidence for that. You, you started off and you nailed it. You use your entire brain. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a lot of data that supports that. I mentioned developmentally what happens in the human brain is that you're born with you know many many more neurons than you have now right and that's true for all of us i'm not making aspersions upon any of your recreational activities (laughs) or anything Um, but we're all born with more neurons than we have um, when we become adults and what happens is the neurons that are there that don't become you that don't are not don't form circuits are not used those neurons die the ones that survive become much more complex in their connections with other cells. And that's why I mentioned making noises and speech a a little bit earlier. Babies are born knowing how to make noise. Somewhere around two years of age, 
the areas that are involved with making noise get connected and that la becomes language. And if you're born in China, you grew up speaking Chinese, Spain, Spanish, French, and France, et cetera, et cetera. That happens sort of universally. But our brains are born with more neurons in the speech areas of the brain than we're ever gonna use. And the ones that aren't used die, don't survive. And it's very, very clear from modern technology, whether you're looking at PET scans or fMRI scans, that your brain is, all of your brain is used. There is no grandma cell in your brain. There, that cell was destroyed, you would lose the memory of your grandmother. There's no arithmetic you know, cell in your brain. You know, and, and behavioral tasks are global brain tasks. In fact, your brain is never off. Even when you sleep, there are parts of your brain that are more active than when you're awake. And when you're awake, there's parts of your brain that are more active than you know, when you're asleep. It's very interesting that way. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. If you look at it, even if you don't have a lot of background in the neurosciences and neuroanatomy, that if you just realize and appreciate the multiple different parts of your brain that function and do different things, to really sit back and think about the statement that you only use 10%, it very quickly starts to not make a lot of sense. Yeah, it actually makes it actually makes it makes no sense. Yet it persists. Yeah. And and, and one can ask the question, why does it persist so much? One reason the brain myth persists is, like we were saying, is it's repeated so often that people start to believe it. You start to see it in advertisements, usually people selling you things. You see it on TV, um, and you see it a lot by you know psychics and paranormal pushers um, who are actually you know trying to say you're more than you are right now. And uh, I think it's part of the human condition is that we all like to think we could be better than we are. And that transcends, um, you know, if you think of all the industries built around that, there's beauty industry of um, skincare, mm -hmm. of hair care, of clothes. All different oh, types of pop culture. Pop culture. Everywhere. All, walk into a bookstore and look at all the self-help books, mm -hmm. right? We all wish we could be more than we are. So there's something about human, the capacity that our brain gives us to think about not just what we are, but what things we could do to make ourselves better. And I think that's related. We all want to think that our potential has not been met, that there's more out there for us. If somebody asks you, you know, you know, what percent of your brain are you actually using? The answer is you nailed it 100% of your brain Absolutely. all of the time. <laughs> we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronc, 1077thebronc.com. Live from the Colnarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Carp. Diamond McNellis and I, the producer, are here today talking about fact versus fiction and the kinds of things that we hear that sound good and we're sort of asking, do they make any sense? The next thing we want to talk about, uh, uh, Diamond, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard anybody say you need to drink eight glasses of water per day? Absolutely. <laughs> and before we picked the topics for today, I didn't even realize it was a myth. <laughs> Let's sort of look at these things, fact versus fiction. To understand this eight glasses of water per day, let's talk a little bit about the physiology of water. What happens 
when, when people drink water, what's happening? And I think we all can relate to these things. And remember, I'm not trying to teach a physiology lesson here, but in the most broadest sense, we all have experienced this, I'm willing to bet. If you drink a lot of water, and you look at your pee, and you don't drink a lot of water during the day, is your urine the same? No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very, very different, isn't it? Yes. So if you are otherwise healthy, and you consume large amounts of water, you produce very, very dilute urine. Mm -hmm. However, if you're otherwise healthy, and you do not consume a lot of water during the day, what happens is, is your body releases less urine, and you produce lesser amounts, and it's higher con concentrations of it. And so what's that, what is that telling us? It's telling us that our body has a built-in way to regulate the amount of water in our body. And behaviorally, we call that thirst. Right? <laughs> Physiologically, what's happening is, is that there are osmoreceptors in the anterior part of your hypothalamus. They're in an area that's abbreviated the OVLT, which stands for the Organ Vasculosum of the Lamina Terminalis. That just flows off wow. one's tongue. And that really doesn't matter. What's important there is your brain, this part of your hypothalamus is your brain, has receptors in it, neurons that are sensitive to osmolarity. And that's the concentration of water in your blood. When osmolarity changes, those receptors communicate with parts of, uh, of your brain and ultimately create signals from your brain that will go from your hypothalamus to your pituitary. And for example, hormones will be released by the pituitary, the posterior pituitary, which will go down to your kidney. When that sequence happens, the hormone vasopressin, which is also known as antidiuretic hormone, hmm. goes down to the kidney. That's the same, it's the same hormone with two different names. When that hormone is produced, it will alter the ability of your kidney to reabsorb water. Because the way the kidney works, water and, and the things in the water, water-soluble things are absorbed from your blood into your kidneys in these functional units called the nephrons. And then some of it comes back out and the stuff that comes back out becomes urine. And what happens in the presence of vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone is it causes the reabsorption of water by your kidneys. And we've all experienced that because what I talked about before, the urine you produce changes in its concentration, the osmolarity, the water concentration changes. And some of us might have experienced the fact that even when you drink alcohol, what happens is you produce larger amounts of very, very dilute urine because one of the things alcohol does is prevent that circuit that I just described from secreting vasopressin. So your kidneys fail to reabsorb water. And if your body fails to reabsorb it, it just sort of goes out. So that's sort of the physiology, in a really brief overview, the, the physiology of sort of drinking. So you, all of us, if, if we are otherwise normal, have a built-in mechanism that controls the amount of urine we produce to help maintain the osmolarity of our blood. That osmolarity means the, the water concentration of our blood. So why is there even this idea that you have to drink eight glasses of water per day? Well, in doing some research on, on where this sort of came from, the origins um, as best that anybody can tell, come from around 1945 when the Food and Nutritional Board, an organization of the government back then, was talking about the kinds of things that people needed to eat and needed to drink. And they had a quote in there. Uh, they, had done, they had done research, and, and, and they realized that, and it varies if you're a male or a female, but so in, their, in that report, there's a thing that says, you know, humans need to consume about 2,500 mils of water per day. 
And that, over the years, is sort of playing the game of telephone, has been converted. Oh, my God, everybody needs to drink eight waters, eight glasses of water per day. What they fail to recognize is that report went on and the literature since that point went on is the, the punchline is it doesn't matter where, that, where the water comes from. The food that you eat, that we all eat, it's full of water. Right? Oh, wow. <laughs> think about it. I didn't even fruit. think about it that way. Watermelon is almost all water. All water. And fruits and even the tomatoes. Even tomatoes and other foods. You know, you're eating, you're consuming water all the time. So what they were saying is you don't need to have that so-and-so amount of water on top of everything else. What you're saying is it's incorporated in other things. Absolutely. Like I said, so the idea that you have to drink eight glasses of water per day is a little bit crazy yeah. if you're eating a lot of, let's say, go to the extreme, eating a lot of watermelon, <laughs> right? Because what's going to happen if you consume a lot of watermelon and you eat water, you're going to produce copious amounts of very, very dilute urine. If you weren't eating that, you would produce less urine and it would be very, very concentrated. Now, there are good things that are associated with water consumption. And we know dehydration is bad. Yeah. You should consume water either in your food or in your drink because dehydration results in poor physical performance, poor cognitive performance. And there's an entire industry built around, like in athletes, drinks to rehydrate. And if you are a, an athlete, you're out in the heat and you're doing that kind of stuff, those are, it's, you, should, you should hydrate. You should stay hydrated because dehydration in the extreme, you can actually die from. Drinking a lot of water is also good um, for weight loss, especially if you drink water before a meal, because mm -hmm. studies have shown that if you fill up a little it's bit of water, in. you'll just eat a little bit less food. Yeah. And so if you're trying to lose weight, that can be a very good. You put less calories in, you're going to gain less weight. So it decreases appetite a little bit. I hear it a lot for cosmetic purposes. It makes your skin nicer. It, well, it'll that, clear up blemishes, <laughs> stuff well, like that. That's what I hear. So well, it that, might that, be a myth. <laughs> I don't know. That's another thing that we could address, but not here. Okay. <laughs> what the literature what the literature does show that if you have to if you drink water you, the severity of headaches often goes away because mm -hmm. headaches are awfully asso often associated with dehydration it decreases the risk of kidney stones it can decrease constipation which is also a big problem in our society and you walk into a drugstore sort of provide um, evidence for that but the idea is how much should somebody drink every, every day? And the answer is it really depends. If you are otherwise healthy, on average, that report from 1945 said about 2,500 mils per day. I've seen more recent estimates that, you know, for females, adult females, it should be about 2,600 mils. For adult males, it should be close to 3,600 mils. If you are otherwise healthy, it doesn't matter how you stay hydrated. There are more ways to do it than, than just drinking water. And the good news is that we have a built-in way of how much should we drink. Well, we should drink as, you know, when we get thirsty. And that mechanism of your brain monitoring the osmolarity of your blood through the OVLT and its projections and to the mediamins, to the hypothalamus and vasopressin secretion, um, you basically can tell, are you drinking enough water? Are you not drinking enough water? And you can sort of see it in the urine that you produce. Yeah, so, so you you can tell. And it's really important to listen to your body when it's trying to tell you these things. So they might seem like simple indications. Like if you're 
overly thirsty or if your urine changes but they're really important indications that your body's trying to tell you and that you should listen to and stay hydrated and so if somebody asks you how much water you should drink per day you can tell them there's no science behind that eight glasses of water per day there are many ways to stay hydrated water is one way you have to remember too there's entire industries that are that have been dedicated to selling you water now Mm -hmm. selling you drinks and they make a lot of money off that myth and has perpetuated that for a long time. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077 thebronkcom From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, professor of biology, behavioral neuroscience, and health sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live for the Kilnarney's public health studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Carp. Diamond McNellis and I are here in the studios and we're talking about fact versus fiction as it relates to health related items. And the next thing I'd like to talk about, Diamond, is the question Should everybody take vitamins? What do you think? What have you heard? I should ask first. I've really heard both sides of it. When I was younger, I know that all us little kids were on the gummy vitamins, and Mm -hmm. I don't really know if they were necessary. Now I know after going to the doctors, and I was vitamin D deficient, so I'm on that daily. And I asked, is there anything else I should be taking? And she said, absolutely not. Do not take anything else unless you are deficient. It's unnecessary. So now I know. But when I was younger, I think it was more well thought that you should be taking vitamins to help with health and stuff like that so let's let's talk a little bit about that let's talk a little bit about what people need to eat and try to discuss this here should everybody be taking a a vitamin or a multivitamin these are kinds of things as you mentioned people eat most of the most of the time what kind of things do people need to eat it boils down to people need to eat three general categories of what's called macronutrients that's proteins people need to eat carbohydrates like sugars and people need to eat a little bit of fat. One can argue about the percentage of those things that one should have ideally, but those are the, the main things that humans need to eat. On top of that, humans need to drink some water, and they also need just trace amounts of vitamins and minerals. That's sort of what people just need to survive and do well. If you are otherwise healthy, <laughs> the question is, if you're eating a healthy diet, a well-balanced diet, you know, and doing all the things that you're supposed to do, do you need to take vitamins? And where does people's quest for a magic pill sort of sort of come from? The bottom line, I'll just cut to the chase on this, you know, the science of multivitamins involves a lot of empty promises and a lot of murky research. Unless you have an, a clinically identified deficiency, there's little reason to take a multivitamin. In your case, you said a, you were diagnosed with a, a specific vitamin deficiency mm-hmm. and you were able to supplement that in your diet. People who are on some of the fad diets and things might have very, very specific deficiencies and then multivitamins might be appropriate thing to do. That being said, the multivitamin business in this country is really, really big business. Oh yeah. It, it sounds good. I saw an estimate from 2015 saying it's a 28 billion dollar year business and remember too as long as the people selling vitamins and nutrients 
uh, don't make health claims. As long as they don't make medical claims, they can sell all these things as sort of supplements. Yep. Right? We, should, we need to keep that in mind. What do vitamins do in the body? Well, you only need trace amounts of them, very, very small amounts. And they tend to be cofactors in biomedical products. They tend to be involved with digestion and metabolism. But you do not need large amounts of these things. That being said, there are two general categories of, of, of vitamins. Some of them are water-soluble, which you know they, they dissolve in water, and some of them are not, that are more like fat-soluble kinds of vitamins. And most of the time, your body doesn't store these things. Have you ever noticed if you've been on a multivitamin and looked at your urine, what happens? It changes. <laughs> <laughs> what about it changes? Color of your urine will change. And essentially, if you pay attention to your body, what it's saying is if you take large amounts of these vitamins, the extra ones that your body's not using, you're basically pissing them away. Yeah, that's what I heard, that if it's unnecessary and your body doesn't need it, it's just going... It's nowhere. It's right. You you expel it in your urine. Some of it will be expelled in your feces and, and and things like that. Yet it's a huge industry, and people think they need to take it. Now there are cases that are sort of part of normal physiology, and I think the data is pretty good for like pregnant women taking you know folic acid and things prenatal. Like that. Yeah. Yep. To help pre- prevent you know neural tube defects. Without making medical claims, people can sell vitamins you know, with impunity. And I've seen estimates that estimate to say about half of all Americans take some sort of vitamin or supplement. And for older Americans, it climbs to around 70%. The market is growing, especially in people who are nervous about things or are scared about things. They think if they take vitamins, you know, the, the magic pill, their ills will go away, their problems will go away. This is not to say that there aren't vitamin deficiencies. Vitamin deficiencies like scurvy or beriberi, or but it, there hasn't been, you know, scurvy is a vitamin C def- deficiency that usually doesn't show up in first world nations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we drink milk, it's hard to find milk without vitamin A or vitamin D added into it. But then again, we don't see things like rickets or night blindness anymore because there are certain vitamin deficiencies. But in the foods that we eat in in these things are taken away from us because of the health benefits of uh, multivitamins are. That being said, studies show that people who take these supplements are very, very confident in their beliefs, both about the, the efficacy and the safety of these products. It's one of those, my mind's made up, I know this is good for me, I'm gonna do it, I really don't care what the data say. Don't confuse me with the facts. There you go. <laughs> My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And to, you know, to be a little blunt, that's sort of the hallmark of ignorance. Yep. The hallmark of an educated consumer is somebody who can say, whoa, you know, I have to change my mind. I have to change what I believe. What I believe is not matched by the data. It's not matched by the science. It's not matched by the people who are, are doing or investigating the kinds of things that I'm, that I'm interested in. That being said, there is strong evidence that you know, a healthy diet can ward off chronic diseases, like heart diseases, can contribute to things like cancer. What's less clear is if you know, large intakes of particular micronutrients can boost and influence that further beyond just what a healthy diet is. A great example is a guy named Linus Pauling, who you know, won two Nobel Prizes for his research in chemistry. Brilliant guy became in his later life sort of one of these mega dose vitamin C people. 
And he started off saying, if you take mega doses of vitamin C, you'll prevent colds. Became mega doses of vitamin I've heard C. That. Yeah, it, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you've heard that. He went to the point in the in the 80s. Linus Pauling was saying mega doses of vitamin C was prevent the spread of the HIV virus. It got to the point where he was saying mega doses of vitamin C, despite the evidence, you know, were would prevent cancer. And he was taking huge amounts of it, way beyond the, you know the FDA you know required or recommended doses. I have a question okay. where, if that's be- all being filtered out, I assume through the kidneys, could that be harmful? That all this extra work and things that need to be filtered out, can that actually be like counterintuitive? It, absolutely, it, it can be, and, and especially for some of the uh, not water soluble vitamins. Uh, the water soluble vitamins tend to be to be excreted if you take too much of them in the urine but some of them that aren't water soluble can sequester in organs and actually can cause organ problems and and, and, and let me give you another question here and this has actually come up in my lifetime sort of the idea of cancer and all of us want to avoid cancer it's not it's not a good thing and we know that diet is one of the multiple things that contributes to cancer onset but let me just ask, what is a cancer cell? A cancer cell is a cell that has stopped being what it's supposed to be and has become a cell that is dividing and dividing and dividing and it creates a tumor. And some of these tumors can actually kill you. And ultimately what happens if you have a cell in this organ doing this, it stops being that organ cell. Well, in order for that cell to divide and keep dividing, it needs energy, it needs Nutrients. It needs nutrients. It needs both macronutrients, you know, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, and it needs micronutrients. And there is, there are people out there who claim that if you are actually taking vitamins and you're taking high doses of these things, you might be fueling tumors. So it could like promote a like tumor microenvironment. There are people who believe that, and there's you know, because think about it, if you're using these things and they provide fuel and energy, you're not just fueling and energizing, energizing the healthy cells in your body, but it's something to think about. Are you also feeding a potential tumor? That's scary. And in, in my lifetime, I've in, been in a place where nurses in cancer wards have been fired for not giving like IV vitamins to the patients. In, in the ward that have been prescribed by physicians because they don't they feel like they're harming their patients and don't want to do that. Oh, wow. Just something to think about. Wow. <laughs> so we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. Diamond and I, our producer, are here talking about different healthcare things, talking about facts versus fiction. One of the things I'd like to talk about here in October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, is the idea that antiperspirants might cause breast cancer. Fact versus fiction. Is this something you might have heard about before, Diamond? Oh, absolutely. My mom bothers me all the time with it, that... I put it on too often and that I'm going to get breast cancer, but 
I think I've heard that it's with the aluminum-based antiperspirants. Because I think now that there's advertisements going around that I don't have aluminum in me. <laughs> so by me, you won't get breast cancer. Well, you've, you've hit exactly on what I want to talk about. And um, we'll be careful because your mom might be listening. <laughs> so the idea that antiperspirants might cause breast cancer is I found some literature that sort of traced that idea back to the late 1990s with an email that went around with, that was titled Breast Cancer Prevention. And I'll just read the first, uh, the first three lines of it. Breast cancer prevention, not just for women. Men, don't forget to tell mom, cousins, etc. Deodorants, in parentheses, non-antiperspirants are very hard to find, but there are a few out there. I just got this information from a health seminar I would like to share. Bing, bing, bing. The leading cause of breast cancer is the use of antiperspirant. Blah, blah, blah. And it goes on. And it says, please pass this along to everyone you care about. Or breast cancer is common. And this sort of it spread through the internet like a wildfire. And it went all around. Could imagine. And yeah, and it, and it did. And what it went on to identify is you mentioned aluminum. Aluminum is a component that's in a lot of antiperspirants as mm -hmm. distinguished from deodorants. Deodorants are something that just sort of mask a smell. Antiperspirants are things that not only are designed to mask smells, but are also designed to prevent sweat glands from releasing the kinds of things that they release, which we, we, we can talk about. So it opened up this idea saying that aluminum somehow, when you apply it, causes breast cancer. And that went on to say, that the people who latched onto this saying it's more prevalent in women than in men because women shave under their arms, men don't shave under their arms, and the fact that you don't shave under your arms prevents aluminum from being absorbed, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there were the idea that when you shave under your arms, you're causing all these micro cuts that's allowing the aluminum in. And you're wow, not, it just it, kept going. Yeah, it, <laughs> it gets it kept, deeper and deeper. It, it, it kept going. So before we get to talk about those sort of things, and the idea that eventually it, went, it might not be the aluminum, it might be something called these parabens, which are these other components of um, antiperspirants. Let's look at the biology of sweat glands a little bit to see if it, see if it even makes sense. Okay. okay. So what are these sweat glands? The kind of sweat glands that are under your arms, near your armpit, are called apocrine glands, A-P-O-C-R-I-N. And what these are basically glands that are associated with hair follicles tend to be uh, you know in your in your under in your armpits and in your groin um, and they secrete substances associated with your hair these substances in and of themselves are odorless odor is usually caused by microbial agents working on those things after it comes out, out of your body the idea of putting aluminum in an antiperspirant is it blocks these glands it basically keeps these glands from secreting the things that they do and so aluminum would be a material that blocks it Okay. The, I, the reason women are told not to use antiperspirants before going having mammograms and things is just because aluminum sometimes will show up on a mammogram and cause like a false positive. It, oh, wow. it cre creates a little shadow. So it's not, it's not a link to breast cancer. It's purely a mechanical thing about the element of aluminum showing up a shadow and creating a false positive on a, okay. on, on, on a, on a mammogram. The other ingredient that I mentioned were these parabens. Parabens are not just in a perspirants. They're really a preservative on uh, an antimicrobial agent that is put, in, or used to be put into a lot of these agents. It's put in foods. Most antiperspirants now in the United States don't even have these things in them anymore. 
they were linked to this idea that antiperspirants cause breast cancer because parabens have some estrogen-like activities they've been shown in the literature. When people were looking at antiperspirants and breast cancer, they created this thing where they were connecting these sweat glands in your armpit because your armpits are near your breasts. They were coming up with the idea that these things are connected. Now, was the, this was just conjecture? It, the, and the anatomy doesn't support the okay. idea that these micro cuts or the aluminum. Like it was never the proven. The anatomy doesn't work. These, these glands are in the deepest layers of your dermis. They're down deep low. Mm-hmm. Even if you have micro cuts, you're not bleeding to the point where you're opening up your skin to get these things into your sweat glands. The other thing that, that I talked about is, oh, oh, if you put this stuff on your skin, it sometimes gets into your lymph nodes. Well, your lymph nodes, they do, you know, are, do remove toxins. Your sweat glands are not designed to remove toxins. Um, your lymph nodes, which are part of your immune system, do collect you know, macrophages and all the cells of the immune system, and they're designed to remove waste like your immune system, but they have no connection to sweating. So the idea that your sweat glands are connected anatomically to your lymph nodes makes no biological sense in your skin, and yet it went on. And so in the bottom line is this, the origin of this myth is basically based in a misunderstanding of biology. It's not true that these apocrine sweat glands produce substances that bacteria in your skin respond to, a source of detoxification. Your lymph nodes are, but they're not connected to your, to, to your sweat glands at all. Do people just say that, or was it come up with because maybe they're close in proximity? Was that the only reason? Well, I, I think the people who were promoting this... Um, or just need some reason to verify it. We're looking for a connection. It's like saying, the, the, there's a famous saying that, you know, global climate change is due to a reduction in pirates over the last 300 years (laughs) we now it's clear there are fewer pirates now than there were so it's a correlation but it's it's not causation it's not a a causation and there's a there's a a thing that happens in talking about these things it's calling so arguing from the point of ignorance it's like two people are standing outside and they see something go across the sky and one person says do you know what that is i don't know that person says I can't explain it either. So, well, it must be a UFO. And so I goes, yeah, it must be a UFO. That's it must that, be aliens. That's that, yeah, it must be aliens. That, sound, that sounds really good to me. <laughs> but people have looked at it. And if you look at the scientific literature and you go to the National Cancer Institute and these, you know, American Cancer Institute, no scientific evidence links the use of any of these products to the development of breast cancer. No studies have confirmed any substantial adverse effects of aluminum that can contribute to increased breast cancer risk. Most deodorants and antiperspirants in the United States do not carry parabens, even if they have small estrogenic activity. The estrogens that your body normally produces are way, way, way higher than any of these small things. Yeah, and I would just like to point out that just because it hasn't been found in a study to be linked doesn't mean that it wasn't studied. People have asked me that question before. They haven't found it, so were they even looking for it? Uh, Yeah, it was studied, and there's no link. In science and in true science, when you get into the scholarly articles and the work, everything that is written is peer-reviewed intensely and must be proven. Yeah, and, and given how difficult it is in science to ever prove a negative beyond any, any, any doubt, it's not possible that something like an antiperspirant, be it aluminum or parabens, might contribute to breast cancer development. However, given the existing state of scientific evidence, it's incredibly unlikely there's a causal relationship between these two things. 
no one's been able to convincingly demonstrate that such a thing exists or even if this in this case a correlation despite efforts there, you know it's not like people aren't trying there's no scientific conspiracy here but there's <laughs> absolutely no link in anything that anyone's been able to think about to connect antiperspirants with breast cancer the mm -hmm. most common risks for breast cancer have to do with genetic susceptibility environmental um, biology, you know, things related to, you know, the age, body weight, number of children you've had, things like that, not antiperspirant use. And that's another thing I'd like to tie back to a previous show we had on Dr. Riggs, who's an immunologist, and he was talking about the link or the non-link between vaccines and autism. And as he was saying, if a scientist were to find out that a substance or a vaccine or antiperspirants were linked to autism or cancer, they wouldn't keep that information hidden. They would make it known and they would be hailed a savior. So this isn't, like you said, this isn't some conspiracy between all the scientists and the science community to keep this information hidden. It's just the research does not back up the claim. Absolutely. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Kilnarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. I'd like to thank Diamond McNellis, our producer. Thank you for I'm taking Dr. The Jonathan Carp from the Biology Department at Health Studies Dr. Institute Jonathan at Rider, Univers from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.